0: This is Farmers Inside Track, supported by Food from Zanzi, inspiration for your business and life, from South Africa's farmers and agripreneurs.
1: How's it Mzansi and welcome to another episode of Farmers Inside Track. Yes, we are still in the COVID-19 lockdown and it certainly is not as pleasant as it used to be a few weeks ago. But we have accepted our new reality and life continues virtually I guess. My name is Dawn Numdu. I'm the editor of Food for Zanzi, and joining me from his home office is Ivor Price, the co-founder of South Africa's leading agricultural news and lifestyle platform.
2: Hey Dawn, I have to admit that the lockdown is getting a little bit tough, even for someone who considers himself a proud introvert. You might remember that a few weeks ago I boasted saying I can easily do a thousand days in lockdown. I'm not so sure anymore, I miss my own space although I am being spoiled rotten here in lockdown with my family. But listen, we have to do a little happy dance first. The upside of the lockdown is that our Farmers Inside Track podcasts have been buzzing in the official South African podcast charts. So thank you, Mzansi. Thanks for showing us so much love.
1: Wow, that's amazing, Iva. The Food for Mzansi platform has also reached close to a million people in the last few weeks. And this is testimony not only to the power of the brand but also to our farmers and everyone else in the agricultural sector who has really gone above and beyond to maintain food stability in this difficult time and that brings me to today's guest joining us all the way from KwaZulu-Natal Morgan Brunt is not only one of our favorite farmers and humans but also a qualified scientist who adds tremendous value to his game so stay tuned life in South Africa can be a lot I mean scroll through Twitter for a minute and tell me I'm wrong. Thank God for South Africans though, right? We're inspiring and even on the bad days we fight back with a smile. That's why I love Food for Mzanzi so much. They're not ashamed to celebrate the ordinary unsung heroes who work every day to put food on our nation's tables. Go to foodformzanzi.co.za and never miss an inspiring story. How's it Morgan, thanks for joining us virtually. We have lost track of time and most of us aren't really sure which day it is exactly, but how's lockdown been treating you?
0: How's it guys, Doing, and Ivor, thanks for connecting with me on this platform. Lockdown on this side has been a bit of a challenge in the beginning. We're a food producing farming system here. Where we're growing bananas. And the first couple of weeks of lockdown were a bit shaky as the clarity of the information being pushed down from the top wasn't quite there. But I think we've ironed the creases out and things are starting to normalize for us again in terms of the distribution of food. But other than that, I'm okay on the farm. I don't mind being stuck here by myself. Like I've always said, a proud introvert. I think I could do a thousand days of lockdown on the farm. There's a thousand projects that I could run around and keep doing. So I'm quite happy to be out here.
2: So listen, guys, if you're hearing tractors in the background, I'm not on a farm. I'm in lockdown in the middle of a city with my parents. (laughs) Morgan, where exactly are you in lockdown and how has this pandemic impacted your local community?
0: Yeah, I'm on the south coast of KwaZulu-Natal, right down near the end, near the Eastern Cape border. As far as the impact in the local community, there's a large rural population living just out behind the farming lands. And for them, I think there's been a a lot of changes they've had to adapt to. There's been a a big shakeup on normal day-to-day life. A lot of people are confused and a bit lost as to what the future is going to be for them. But as far as farming goes, it seems the farmers have upped their game and they've had to shuffle around The legislation providing the necessary precautionary or the necessary health materials like sanitizers and face masks. It's always a bit of a joke when you see the guys in the back of a bucky and they've all got their masks on. Everybody has a good laugh at it. But it hasn't really gotten into the communities yet. And so I think that the reality of it hasn't hit us.
1: Morgan, let's go back, way back to your childhood days. Growing up in Adelaide in the Eastern Cape, how has your childhood influenced who you have become today?
0: Dawn, I grew up in Adelaide, and most people don't know where that is. It's uh, near Grahamstown between Fort Beaufort and Bedford, and it's a really small town. I was one of the few English kids growing up in an Afrikaans town. My first year at school was 1994, so that was at the transition between old South Africa, new South Africa, so I've grown up what we would call the Rainbow Nation. And I think my early childhood years have significantly impacted my life and who I am today. We were a very small town with very few people and the most fun we had was always outside. We didn't have TV that my dad never got us any Mnet or DSTV or anything like that. So we were forced to play around in the felt. We used to go for camps as just a bunch of 10-year-olds who'd be out in the bush by ourselves camping and my dad being a scientist and my mom being a teacher, I think they really did a lot for me in my early childhood development.
2: Your father is a biochemist by profession. It sounds like he was a great mentor to you also as an academic. So how are you putting your academic knowledge into practice on the farm? I know that you are currently pursuing your PhD. My dad, he's
0: very sneaky like that. He never directly told me that I should follow science. Never really told me what to do. He kind of guided me. He provided me with the tools that I needed, I suppose, to figure things out. And by giving me certain experiences, maybe sparked a flame in my scientific side of me. And I didn't know that I was going to pursue science up until I registered for a BSc in 2006. I was in a gap year in in London and I wrote back to my dad and I was like, dad, I think uh, I'm going to do a BSc. How do we get this done?
1: As I understand it, you started working under the wings of Besta Antombela and her husband Mashaleni. Were they working on the family farm and what have you learned from them?
0: Besta, she's, as far as I can tell, Zulu mom. She started working on my grand's farm in 1968 and she remembers the day. It was somewhere around the 6th of May when she started working and she remembers it very clearly. She tells me these stories. She was 16 at the time. During that period, she met Masha who they then got married. And in 1992, Besta moved to the farm that I'm on now, which is my dad's portion of land. So I've grown up with Besta. Besta has been around my whole life. She is one of my moms. And us working together now is absolutely beautiful. It's like we're best friends and we work together every day. We sit and have tea together. We talk about how we're going to go about the day's chores and what we can do and how we can improve on what we're doing. We both go around looking at the bunches and bragging about how we've done such a good job in this field and that field. And working with them has been a a great opportunity to get to understand somebody else's perspective of what this farm is. Her husband, Mashalene, is one of the strongest men I've ever met. He doesn't speak any English and I struggle to speak Sulu. So the two of us kind of point and shout and laugh and we get the job done. But he's in his 70s now and he just keeps going. He can work a whole day with a brush cutter. And that, to me, is a real sign of strength.
2: And Morgan, I can imagine that you are still somehow always busy gathering and analyzing data, hoping that it would lead to new discoveries.
0: One of the things that I started working with during my PhD was a software called RStudio. It's a programming language called R. And statisticians use it as a statistical language. But we used it a lot in my data capture and my data analysis for my PhD. So since I got to the farm, I started looking at the farm production data, rainfall data, and I started putting that into R and trying to run models and understand it, graph it. You don't necessarily get any actionable data out of it or actionable stuff out of the data, but it's good to have the ability to use the data that I have on the farm. PhD taught me a lot about recording data. Record everything, write everything down. Even if you don't know what you need it for, when you're going to need it, you're going to need it at some point and it's better to have written it down than not to. So I try and collect every data point that I can and I find my desk is often filled with random pieces of paper with various calculations and things on it and I struggle to throw anything away. So I've got files of of all sorts of random notes that I I think one day I'll go back to. Maybe I'll never go back to it, but at least it's there for me to potentially go back to.
1: Morgan, and if we can just speak generally in terms of your study, your research, and your analysis over these years, what's the health status of South African soils? Are we doing enough to maintain its levels of fertility in spite of threats such as oil compaction and the intensification of agricultural production?
0: Dawn, I think that we are to an extent in certain areas and certain farming practices, but I think that the idea of really building soils hasn't been a story that most farmers have followed. The science behind it is it's sort of a new field and it's only being developed currently. So there's a lot that we're still learning. I don't think that farming in South Africa in general has got the soil as a priority. Looking around the business side of farming seems to push above the conservation end of it and i understand the necessity as a business to make a profit but at the cost of what i think is what we're going to discover one day when we realize that our soils are depleted and that the microbial systems that should be there are no longer there and so you do not have the sustainable cycles that should be happening naturally within the soil food web
2: morgan you should really link up with dr nadir milan he's an academic and the founder of Izibanda Zukudla. He's done a lot of research on the importance of sustainable farming.
0: Recently found some of his stuff and I've been interacting and following him. He seems like he's got the real small-scale farmer at heart. The way that I imagine this might play out is that you're going to find your inputs are going to be increasing gradually and the cost of inputs is also going to go up. And then pest pressure, it's really where it's going to come down to we're going to end up with pests that we never had and we're going to have resistance within pests that we didn't foresee and we're going to be tied into an input-driven system. And those inputs come from external sources and each of them come with a cost, a carbon cost. As those input, the need for those inputs goes up, I think that the carbon costs of farming are going to outweigh the benefits of the food production. So I think in maintaining healthy soils, we're able to sequester carbon, because we have a living system in that ground that is taking excess carbon dioxide out of the air as well as locking carbon into the soil in roots and providing food for these microbial systems that are cycling nutrients, things like nitrogen, potassium, and phosphates naturally. And if we have living systems and living soils, we don't require these huge inputs. And another thing about having healthy soil ecosystems They have influences right up through the plant. So, their presence around the roots and in the root zone actually increases the plant's entire immune response itself. So, if you have a healthier plant and a happier plant, then it's more resistant naturally to these pests and we'll be able to reduce our inputs through that. So, I think that looking at something like agriculture as a business and you can add these inputs and get this yield, I think we need to change that mindset. And it shouldn't be a yield driven mindset. We should look at a output-driven mindset. So what are we putting in and what are we getting out? I think is where we're going to end up really use the sums to weigh it up.
1: Just talking about healthy ecosystems, I think, Morgan, that's the one thing that really struck me in your earlier Food from Zanzi interviews. And has COVID-19 put some urgency on this specifically for farmers? I mean, surely they should understand their land's potential.
0: I thought that same thing when I got into farming, that surely people understand the land's potential. But I think that using a business model and a business-driven mindset in farming, it doesn't look to the land to decide what it can do. So I follow a group in Australia. The guy is Darren Doherty. His organization is called Regarians. And they're a regenerative farming organization where they have a Regarians platform. And it's basically a checklist where they go through various points and you start at the top at your climate and you work down through geography, water access. And what you end up doing is you end up looking at the land and the land then tells you what it can and can't do. Instead of you telling the land, I want to grow bananas here and sugarcane there and macadamia is there or potatoes here and corn there. The land will inform what it can do. And that is I think most for a lot of farmers, but it's not something that they're just sort of turning a blind eye to. I think a lot of the technology being developed nowadays is really making some of that stuff more available to the normal person. Stuff like drone technology, where you can fly a drone over your land and you can get a huge amount of topographic data from that single drone flight that will inform your land's potential through various models. You can model out your water flows. You can see where your ridges are. You can see where your water catchment zones are. And then you can use other implements on those drones to understand where you have water spots and where you have dry spots. And so then design your landscape to allow those plants to grow where the land is informing that they can grow. So I think that most people don't look at it like that. They look at it as a business. And I think we need to run it as a business, but we need to remember that the land isn't just going to do what we want it to do, that we actually need to work with it. And together we can improve farming.
2: So our food sustainability in South Africa is very stable, but it certainly isn't the case in other parts of the world. In fact, the new global report reveals the scope as COVID-19 poses new risks to vulnerable countries. Are you worried, Morgan, that South Africa might face a similar fate one day?
0: I think the food that we produce in the country is, is a lot of sort of staple food. We've got a lot of maize, maize belt. And one of the things that Dr. Nodir talks a lot about as small-scale farmers and their importance in the food systems. I think we have a lot of small-scale farmers, and particularly here in our area, almost every household has got something growing, but that food doesn't make it out of that community. And I think that the food production that we do have in the country, it's maybe not the, the nutritional basket of food that we require, especially looking at something like COVID now, where having a healthy immune system is probably one of our best defenses against the virus, is to be healthy, prior to being infected, so that when you are infected, if you get infected, you have an ability to fight that virus within your own immune system. And food is the ground point, the the most essential thing in creating a healthy immune system, having a diverse and healthy source of food. So I think we're very lucky that we have these small-scale farmers and we have a lot of indigenous knowledge in growing food. But the large portion of our production It's a few types of food. So I think we really need to look at diversifying that food in terms of the nutritional quality and variation in nutrition that we can get from it.
1: Morgan, I think my next question would definitely be, what's the one thing farmers who are future-focused can change in their daily practices to ensure that our food security remains stable?
0: Future-focused farmers. I suppose the only thing we can do is stay observant and keep learning. We never know it all, and we're never going to know it all. So as soon as somebody tells you that this is how you have to do it, I think just be wary of it. Most importantly, stay current, stay innovating, and keep thinking outside of the box, because that is where we're going to have to get to. I don't believe that we're food stable yet, and I think just in my experience with the bananas here and going around the shops and you see some of these food items aren't there that used to be there. I think if we had to have these sorts of restrictions that lockdown has put on us for extended periods of times, we're going to find that we have a serious crisis on our hand in our way that we distribute and manage food systems.
2: So I think keep thinking outside of the box and innovate. You never know enough. Keep learning. So, Morgan, you're a qualified scientist, and I can hear it in the passion in which you talk about your love for farming and, and science. But I believe you have a fun side, too. With alcohol sales being forbidden and all during this lockdown, how has your experiment with homemade beer worked out?
0: (laughs) One of the things that I've always enjoyed doing is I make quite a lot of fermented foods. I make sauerkraut and I've done things with peppers and we've tried fermenting madumbis and sweet potatoes. Naturally, we progressed here in the lockdown into something like trying to brew our own alcohol. And in South Africa, it's illegal to distill and make a concentrated alcohol. To get there, you would have to start with something like a pre-brew. So I figured that's going to be the easiest place that leaves me in the legal ground of the country. I'm allowed to talk about this. And yeast has always been one of these organisms that I've appreciated. It's a living thing that takes sugars and it turns it into alcohol. But it does that in a way to try and minimize the contamination of other things in the system. So it's actually trying to use the alcohol to kill off or to sterilize its system by killing off the other guys that are competing for that food source. And it gets to a point, so you can only do this first stage of fermentation to a point because yeast makes so much alcohol that it actually kills itself off at some point. And then you end up with what you would then take to a still to refine for some kind of an alcohol. But in making my pineapple beer, Besta has been helpful in that process where she often makes like a pineapple juice. She doesn't like to take it too far, so she does a two-day ferment. But I recently bought a hydrometer, so that allows me to test the alcohol content of things. Yeah, we made a pineapple brew. I made a video about it, and there was a bunch of friends of mine and I who were passed together. One of them actually works for SAP now, and the other guy's a microbiologist, and we've got an entomologist in the group. So we were really a bunch of scientists playing around with recipes and reasons behind the ingredients and the time and the tools that we could use at home, and we each made our own brews. And we sat down one Saturday And we spent three and a half hours on a Zoom call, all 12 of us talking about our drinks and sharing our own pineapple beers from our own houses. And it was a a really social experience. Since that video, I've had a lot of questions about it. I suppose I've helped quite a few people make their own pineapple beer, enjoy the next day themselves.
2: So Morgan, you are evidently quite a busy boy. What do you do when you are not busy on the farm?
0: So if I'm sitting around and I don't have anything to do I'll probably pick up a spade and go and start shaping a new bed or find something to plant or try and find some cuttings to grow. Here on the farm, I'm always trying to look at the future, what might be necessary. And if I've got free time, well, then let's use that free time. And if I'm not out and about on the farm, then I'll be sitting at my computer learning about something. I use YouTube a lot to... See how other people do things around the world and try and use some of that knowledge to bring back to you. And the beach, I don't enjoy going to the beach like a beach goer, but I'll go there and I love to swim in the sea. A single teaspoon of seawater is full of viruses and, and microbes, and I feel like we don't get that type of exposure daily, so I feel like I'm improving my microbial diversity by swimming in the sea so it's a bit of a health kick for me to just go and wash off with these sea viruses and microbes and put them all over me.
1: I've never thought of the science part of it but I am a total lover of the beach as well so I can spend hours in that seawater so now I have even more reason to do it so thanks for that Morgan.
0: Just to cut in there that the seawater idea so one of the things Bessa often tells me and she does practices is if they start to feel a little bit sick at home they'll have a glass of seawater and what it does is it flushes out your guts the reason it will flush out your guts is because of all those microbes and viruses in that seawater when when they get into your stomach content and your gut sees it your guts and your microbial communities say hey guys we got some intruders time to flush and you clean out your gut if you were going down a road of potential sickness, that restart might be able to help you. So there's a lot of indigenous knowledge that is hidden. And I think science can help find the clarity and the, the way and why things are done.
1: I think I totally get why people would carry bottles of seawater back home. As I said, thank you so much for joining us, Morgan. Thanks for being such a great sport. And thank you for cheering for Team Food from Zanzi.
0: You guys are really doing a great job here and exposure and using virtual platforms or digital platforms. When I was at university, there was a group of us that tried to push the idea of using social media to disseminate science. And a lot of the old school scientists said that science doesn't have a place on Facebook and we as scientists don't need to be there. But I was always trying to push the idea that if we aren't there, then we've got potential of fake news and people who don't really know what they're talking about having a huge voice. So I was always about trying to use these tools to engage with the public. And I think the platform that Foodform Zanzi has set up is absolutely incredible. And the exposure that they're able to generate from the platform is awesome.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of today's Farmers Insight Track podcast. If you loved it, please don't you share it with all your friends, family and frenemies on Apple Podcast, Google Play and Spotify.
2: And please stay tuned to foodformzansi.co.za for daily doses of inspiration.
1: Stay safe, stay home, and if you can, stay sane with Foodform Zansi.
0: You've been listening to the Farmers Inside Track podcast, supported by Foodform Zansi. For more information, find us on www.farmersinsidetrack.co.za.